Hey everyone, just a reminder that this is a mental health podcast, so some content discussed may be triggering for some. If you're not feeling up to it, hit pause, come back another day, we're not going anywhere. If it is an emergency, please don't hesitate to contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. That is a 24-hour service. Thank you. Turn up the talk podcast. Tackling mental health together. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Season 3 of Turn Up The Talk. You're joined by Pat Clifton, Lockie Drew Morris, and Luca Moretti from the Radio Hub Studios. How are we, boys? Very well, Patrick. How are you? Mate, I'm good. Excited for today's chat to say the absolute least. Feeling good. Icon of Australian sport, Lane Beachley. So, very keen. Very, very keen. What about... What's been doing? It's been a while. It's been a long while. Lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. Heavy, heavy lockdown. No, it's all right. We did squeeze in a golf day just before lockdown. 2021 annual golf day went off like a hit. Yeah, just before we start, a big thank you to Ramwick Golf Club, Darren. Have a have yourself a nice beer, Darren. Thank you for putting on the day. And then we've got um Thanks, guys. our twenty twenty one golf day sponsors. So the Club Valley Hotel and Doyle's obviously they've been great and have come on as our gold sponsors. And then Rise Foundation, Elab, Advanced, Radio Hub, Fit Services, Richardson and Wrench, Eastern Suburbs Group, the Media Precinct, Glenda, big shout out to Glenda, Amenities Cave, Ozback Home Loans, Greenwood Rugby Club, and Junior Academy, uh, Steel City, Lust Liquor. Hawks Brewing, just on Steel City, I think they had their opening on the Sunday at the Chloe, and I heard it was a big success, and we had a little bit on the Friday night, so I'm glad that's going well. Renew it, heaps normal, five by Flynn, and wet paint restaurant. Yeah, some awesome sponsors and some awesome prizes, so a massive shout out to them. Thank you very much for your support again. Thanks to everyone who came to the day. It was very successful, and of course, Darren. Back to the Chloe after it, Friday night, gave out our awards, did our raffle prizes, it was a very, very fun uh, night. They had quite a big weekend there at the Chloe. Did you get there Sunday, Moretti? I did. I did put my head in there for a bit. Saw the, uh, saw the gully days, ripping the house down. Unreal. Well, you know what? Lockie and I, responsibly, we had a bit of a big Friday night, so we we kind of took a back seat and we took our way down to Doyle's and had some amazing seafood on the water just to quiet down a bit. <laughs> Fish cocktails, prawns. You name it. Mate, we washed it down nicely. But yeah, honestly, Doyle's Chloe, you got to get down there. They've got the palmy down at Chloe, the beautiful seafood platter at Doyle's. Massive thanks to them. But today, Lane Beachley, let's go. Yeah, very excited, Patty. Obviously, someone of her stature is very important to Australian sport and for her involvement in the women's rise in surfing. So very excited. Well, yeah, well, speaking of her rise in surfing, she was the first woman to win seven world titles. She's widely regarded as one of the most successful surfers in women's history. She's the only surfer from both men and women to claim six consecutive world titles from 98 to 03, only can be explained as dominance. And uh, most importantly, what she's doing in mental health, speaking out. As we've mentioned, our guest today is Lane Beachley, AO, Order of Australia. Lane, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Getting through the... uh the second stage of lockdown here in Sydney. Oh, yeah, lockdown 3.0. Yeah, I know. Let's go back to the beginning, Lane. Where did it all start? Where did you grow up? Manly Beach. Well, if you could consider me growing up. I grew up at Manly Beach and Sydney's Northern Beaches. I was uh, adopted into a beach-loving family with the last name Beachley, became a pro surfer. It's all a very fortunate twist of fate. And I started surfing when I was four years of age because my dad's a surfer and my older brother Jason also surfs. Were they any as good as you were? No. Definitely not. No, not even close. (laughs) (laughs) What were the locals like around Manly Lane when you were growing up? Was it um, a tough environment? Were they welcoming? It was pretty tough. Um, Look, when I was a kid on my foamy for nine years down there in the southern corner at Manly Beach, it was was a male-dominated environment. always has been, but it was a fun male-dominated environment. It wasn't a hostile one. It wasn't until I progressed to a fiberglass board and then started encroaching upon the northern end of the beach where the best surfers were that that's where I encountered the the threats and the taunts and the hostility. That's where you got the the chauvinistic and sexist attitudes of you're a girl, get out of the water and go and sit on the couch, go and sit on the on the beach with my tees and towel, tees, my keys and towel, and you know, watch me surf and tell me how bloody good I am. You know, 
it was uh it was it was a sign of the times unfortunately but um i didn't i didn't stand for it because i stood for what i believed in you know my values have always governed my behaviors and fortunately i've had pretty strong values and i've also a very strong alignment with those values and they're the thing that it really has been my foundation of strength and and uh um my pillar of support, especially when I felt like the world was against me. Was that something that it just felt natural for you to stand up to or was it something that people like your parents had ingrained into you or was it just something in you that just thought, you know what, I'm just, no, I'm not going to stand for this? I believe it was a combination of nature and nurture. You know, my dad uh, was, he's a pretty strong, stoic, stubborn individual (laughs) and, uh, and even though I was adopted into that family, I still emulate the character. Well, we all emulate the characteristics of people that we admire. And I admired my dad's stoicism and strength and independence. And he he bred that in all of his children. He's got three kids from three different mothers. So uh, I was really grateful to have grown up in an environment where that was encouraged to be to have an opinion and to speak it, uh, to have the safety to fail, the safety to make mistakes. I also grew up with a bunch of guys who were very challenging but fun and supportive at the same time you know the kind of guys that um, if they're not giving you a hard time then they don't love you you know that kind of love that tough love mentality so I grew up with plenty of that so I never encountered well no I say I rarely encountered times where I felt like I was on the outside and if I did find myself on the outside then I sought out my allies. And especially when I was the only girl in the water, I always found guys who were supportive of seeing me out there. The guys that weren't supportive were my my dream thieves and the guys that were supportive were part of my dream team. You doing some research, Lane, you use that phrase a lot, dream thieves. Mm. Uh, in more simpler terms or a way to put it, I took it as kind of the haters, as some people yep. would call it. <clears throat> yeah, I don't like to use that word. Don't like to use that word. So we'll stick to dream thieves. So... <laughs> so growing up a manly, you said you had a few of them. How did that change as you progressed and as you went through the ranks and kind of your prof- your hobby for surfing turned to a profession? Did that kind of ease or did you find you always had those people kind of chiseling down at you the whole your whole career? I always had them chiseling down. That's the tall poppy syndrome that's a toxic culture in this country. But it's also the dream thieves tend to get bigger and louder and brighter as you become bigger and bolder and better. And they become more bitter, I just became better. And I didn't get sucked into their negativity or fear-based methodologies. I uh, I surrounded myself with my dream team members, guys who elevated me and nurtured me, who believed in me and supported me and who encouraged me. Those dream thieves, look, sometimes I use their negativity and fear as uh, – as an opportunity to prove them wrong like they propelled me a little bit it's like you know the 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 saying that I'm I'm most known for is when people say that you can't when people tell you that you can't what you must do is turn around and say watch me and those guys really fueled my fire at times when they told me that I wasn't good enough or smart enough or talented enough or strong enough you know according to my dream thieves I was never enough and uh, as long as, you know, I don't need my dream thieves to tell me that. I mean, we've got common society telling us that all day, every day. Every magazine, every ad, every newspaper is telling us that we're not enough and that we need to buy, do or have something that's going to make us feel more enough. I didn't need my dream thieves to then um, build on that. So I was very fortunate that I had the sense of self-awareness to surround myself with good people and detach myself from people who were toxic and negative. Yeah, and when and with these dream thieves, just asking, um, was ever a time where they kind of got to you, or was there ever a time where you kind of turned the corner? And because you're so strong now, was there a time that kind of defined the way that you are now? Quite honestly, nothing in our lives defines us. It's how we respond to it that defines us, and yeah. it's our attitude and and our character that really defines the lives that we live. Look, be quite honest. Yes, there was plenty of times when they got the better of me. There was plenty of times when the guys in the water just gave me so much stick that I just I had my tail between my legs and I was paddling, crying because I was just yeah. so disheartened and and uh, discouraged by the whole experience. Then I went to the National Scholastic Titles as the new girl on the team and uh, and I, I'll use the word haters, but I hated the experience. There was nothing positive about it. The team was toxic. 
there was really fear-driven. Um, they were not supportive of new kids on the block. It was sexist. It was misogynistic. It was chauvinistic. It was unhealthy environment for a young 15-year-old impressionable young female to be involved in. And when I reflected back on that, I actually made a decision, you know what? I'm never going to subject myself to this kind of environment ever again. So I just skipped the whole amateur scene and went straight to the pro tour. And then once again, when I hit the pro tour, I found myself in an environment where women weren't welcome and it was a toxic, unhealthy, unwelcoming environment. And I've once again felt like, oh, my God, I don't belong here. This is really unhappy and it's an unhealthy and unhappy place for me. But my love of competition and my love of surfing and my desire to be better every day were my foundations of choice. Mm. I could have allowed those, you know, the dream thieves and the and the toxic culture and the lack of duty of care and the lack of support. I could have allowed that to dictate and define me, but I chose to make a choice because it's choice, not chance, that determines our destiny. And I made a choice once again there, like, okay, when I become successful, I'm going to make it easier for future females. Yeah. When I become world champion, I'm going to make the time for people. I'm going to make it safer for people. Yeah. When I become the best in the world, actually not even when I become today, I'm actually going to make the time for people. Like I'm not going to wait until I'm the best in the world before I realize that the, my weight and my thoughts and my actions um, carry weight, you know, that, that my decisions impact another person so when you you know a lot of people say i want to be i want to be of a what's the word i want to make an impact on the world then i say what kind of impact do you want to have a negative impact on the world do you want to have a positive impact on the world and uh yeah i think you've had a big impact on the especially the amateur scene especially female sports in itself i think you're a big role model and um just in saying that as well for any you know amateur female surfers or male surfers for that matter, kind of talk about what was going through your head when um, you were kind of going up. You said you, there was a bit of times where the dream has got the best year. Was there ever a time where you felt like you were about to tap out or was there ever a time yeah. where you had voices in your head where you're going, like, this isn't just me, you know, I'd just be better off doing something else. And talk yes. to us about what kind of um, made you not do it, like what kind of kept you going. Was it a person? Was it a moment? Was it a, just yourself? You know what I mean? There's like, a variety. Talk <laughs> All of the above. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, so the first thing that came to mind when you asked that question, one of the things that prevented me from tapping out was reality, right? I, yeah. I'd finished high school and I joined the Pro Tour, but I couldn't afford to do the Pro Tour full time. So I did it part time and the rest of the time I was working part time and then doing TAFE. Reality of doing TAFE and working in a pub or a pizza shop and delivering pizzas, the reality of that versus getting paid to travel the world or even paying to travel the world and go surfing, that reality was way more <laughs> attractive yeah, than yeah. dealing with the reality of working for a living and, and furthering my education. And quite honestly, when I, when I dedicated myself and I committed myself to an avenue which was not very encouraged uh, and, you know, it was devalued. It was misunderstood. It was disrespected. The industry didn't want anything to do with it. The governing body wanted nothing to do with the women. And then the men, our counterparts, wanted nothing to do with us either. So it, was, it wasn't an environment that I walked into and everyone went, welcome. <laughs> welcome yeah, to yeah. The Woo, you made it. Yeah. It was like, oh, okay, this is shit. This, this is a shit show. Yeah. Um, but how much do I want it? And I wanted it more. Like my desire to succeed far outweighed my fear of failure. Yeah. So, therefore, I chose to commit myself to becoming the best that I could be in an environment where it wasn't really celebrated or recognised or supported just yeah. because it's what I wanted. Yeah. And I also wanted to make a difference in the landscape. Uh, mm. There was plenty of times when I wanted to quit. There was plenty of times it was all too hard. I mean, I was number two in the world earning $8,000 a year from my sponsor, constantly being told, look, you're not worth being paid anymore until you become number one. So I was always living in the shadow of somebody else. I was always compared to somebody else. I was always told that I was never going to make it. Mm. And, um, yeah, those moments sometimes overwhelmed me. Those moments where I'd come home and I'd say, Dad, it's all too hard. I don't want to do this anymore. And he'd say, well, it's all right. You're having a bad day. Just dust yourself off and go back out there again tomorrow and see see what life has in store for you tomorrow. Another thing I resorted to was my journal. Mm. I wrote everything down in my journal to get it out of my head because if it stays in my head it starts to permeate my heart 
Yeah. And when it starts to infiltrate my heart, then my life becomes controlled by it. So getting it out of my head releases it from my body and then it releases it from my energy and then I can start to choose other things. So journaling, communicating with loved, trusted sources, uh, sharing my pain and suffering with people who have earned the right to share in it and who also understand it. Lane, you speak about the financial hardship and it says that you're number two in the world. You're working up to four jobs, 60 hours a week while training, while surfing, while trying to be the best. And then on top of that, you're facing this adversity. And you just said you wanted to make it easier for other young surfers, particularly women or, or athletes, to not have to go through what you went through and, and kind of put up with what you went through, which led you to, I assume, starting your foundation, Aim for the Stars. Can you talk to us about that? Was no point going through shit and then making everyone else go through it. I mean, the whole reason that pioneers break down the pathway and, and pave the way is to prevent the future generation from having to endure that same amount of hardship and adversity that I had endured. That was part of the motivation to ensure that whatever I've been through, that it was worth it. And when I won my fifth consecutive world title, that's when I was presented with the opportunity to start my own foundation. And quite honestly, it didn't really appeal to me. I didn't want to start a foundation. Just one of my mates said, go on, start a foundation. I said, why would I do that? He said, because no other female athlete has. I went, that's a good enough reason for me. I'll go after that. I love being a pioneer. I love doing things differently. So I started Aim for the Stars and I thought about what I had endured And the first thing that came to mind was the world was waiting for me to become world champion before the world believed in me. And I didn't need, I mean, I needed the support while I was on the trajectory on the way up. I, you know, I didn't need it as much when I was already up there, even though the world gives you everything you need when you're a number one, but it's actually when you're on your way that you need it the most. And I wanted to prevent girls from quitting because I was number two in the world twice. And the second time I was over it, the first time I was over it. And then when I came third the following year after enduring my second most debilitating bout of chronic fatigue syndrome, like those last three years, 95, 96 and 97 were the three toughest years of my professional surfing career. And they were the three years I wanted to quit three different times. And it was conversations with employers or my surf coach or my personal trainer and, as I said, my journaling entries and then my meditation practices they were all the things and, and um, sharing the challenges with my um, peers on tour. They were the things that helped me get through that. So when I reflected on all of that, I thought, what can I do to make it an easier pathway for the future generation? Let's create a foundation because in 1995, when I was ready to quit, it was 3 o'clock in the morning when I said to my employer at the old manly boat shed, I'm ready, I'm done, I've had enough. And he said, here's three grand, here's your next round the world air ticket, I believe in you. For someone to say, I believe in you, let alone here's the cash, go do it, that was a catalyst moment in my life. So I thought, well, how can I be that to other women, especially women, because I saw firsthand the disparity of support between men and women in the sport of surfing. I thought, I'm going to start a foundation that gives $3,000 grants to young girls and women to achieve their dreams in all walks of life, music, science, sports, culture, arts, academia, law, environment you name it, we supported it. So for 15 years, we provided a million dollars worth of financial support to over 500 young girls and women. Well, um, I'm sure that made a very big difference, and I'm sure that there's people that are attributing their success to you. You touched on it before, the chronic fatigue syndrome, which I believe Mm -hmm. you were diagnosed with at 23. Yep. And hearing your story now, it's, (laughs) it's easy to understand how that came about with everything that you had on your shoulders. You weren't just trying to be a professional. You were, as you said, being a pioneer. Can you walk us through how that chronic fatigue syndrome affected you? And listening to your story, it sounds like it's all flow on effect and that how that syndrome then affected your mental health. So could you take us down that path and give us an insight into what you were feeling? Sure. So as an athlete, I I prided myself on overcoming adversity and challenge and obstacles. So when my health started to deteriorate, I didn't honor it. I just saw it as another challenge to overcome. So it's the it wasn't like the symptoms just snuck up on me and just engulfed me. There was this there was this continuous evolution, this continuous um experience of a deterioration in my health mentally physically emotionally spiritually everything just started to 
engulf me and then it all became all too overwhelming to the point where I found myself in a state of depression and suicidal tendencies. Now, for a woman who had the world at the end of her feet, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I was standing on the precipice of one of the greatest opportunities of my life to become a world champion surfer, and yet every ounce of my being didn't have the energy or the vitality to embrace it. So I had to do something differently. Now, it wasn't until I got to that state of despair, of despair and depression did I willingly turn around and say, okay, I need help. Because as I said, when I set it up, I, I saw this as a challenge I just had to overcome. So I pushed harder and I pushed harder and I pushed harder and then wondered why I kept getting more and more broken. And then when I found myself thinking of different ways to end my life, I thought this isn't right, this isn't normal, and this isn't healthy. I need to do something about this. So I got scared. Now, from that experience, I've learned that dissatisfaction is the precursor to change. You won't do anything different until you're dissatisfied with your current status. If you're dissatisfied with your quality of health, your quality of relationships, your quality of your mindset, your quality of your weight, whatever aspect of your life isn't working, you won't do anything different about it until you get dissatisfied. I got dissatisfied because I got freaking scared. I was really scared. So that's when I went, okay, I need help. But who do I who do I call? Who do I speak to? Who do, who do I reach out to? Who's not going to judge me? Who's not going to criticize me? Who's not going to make fun of me? Who's not going to give me a hard time and actually make me feel even more guilty or or <laughs> fearful of what I already am? And uh, I thought about people in my life who had endured similar circumstances, and uh, and her name was Joanna Griggs. She was an Olympic swimming champion. I knew she'd been through glandular fever, which is the precursor to cre- uh, chronic fatigue. So I rang her. And I said, I need help. And her response was, what took you so long? So our friends know when things aren't right, but unless we're willing to do something about it, they won't be able to help us. Can I jump in there and and say, obviously, you are a Are You OK ambassador. And um, Are yep. You OK do have a heavy focus on having the conversation. As you can see on your shirt there, a conversation could change your life. What advice would you give to someone who like your friend saw you were struggling, but you weren't ready to speak out. What advice would you give to someone who notices that a friend or a family member or a close relationship to them is struggling, but they they can tell they're not ready to speak out or they're not putting their hand up? How do you have that conversation? You come from a place of empathy and compassion. So the safest place to have these styles of conversation is to put yourself in a position where you show understanding about what they're going through. It doesn't mean you've been through it. It just means that you recognize that they're going through something. So it's as simple as starting with, are you okay? And if everyone keeps saying, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. And you know that they're not, you can actually say, I've just noticed something different about you. I notice you're not as sprightly or you're not as outgoing you're not as engaging um i've noticed you've kind of let yourself go a little bit or oh you what you're saying i'm fat no i'm just really worried about you because you're not your normal self and i want to i want to let you know that i recognize that and when you're willing to talk about it or willing to address it i'm here for you and you've got to be consistent with that style of communication a person who feels like they're under under attack will defend themselves. So if you say something like, you're not your usual self, oh, what are you saying? I'm boring. Or if you say, oh, you've let yourself go, oh, what are you saying? I'm fat. You know, they're going to they're gonna attack, um, well, they're going to defend themselves in the face of attack. So that's when you've got to have that sense of compassion and empathy and self-awareness to go, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I see you, I hear you, I'm here to support you, and I'm going to be here for as long as it takes. Amazing. Flipping it over, Lane, you, I love this quote that you talk about vulnerability and you say vulnerability is a state of power because you're in a state of acceptance. And yes. it's directly what you just said before about being dissatisfied and that's when you're going to see change. Mm. However, particularly men, when we feel vulnerable, we love to deflect and we love to brush it off. And or not, not just men, but men, they're all, there is a, a massive issue with men and owning their feelings and what advice would you give to anyone who are, who's feeling vulnerable? What strategies, what actions can they employ to ensure that they can accept that vulnerability for what it is and know that there's positive change coming? 
very challenging to see positivity when you're in the darkest place of your life. So it's a tough one. Look, there's an amazing book called The Power of Vulnerability, which Brene Brown wrote, and she is an expert in the power of vulnerability. There's, she explains that there's a very fine line between shame and guilt, and those two things put us in a state of fear. Shame is I did this, whereas guilt is my behaviour led to that. And when we men tend to resort to those two particular things to deflect the vulnerability, they run away from it or um, they beat themselves up about it or they go and beat someone else up about it. And when you're in a state of, as you said, when you're in a state of vulnerability, you are in a state of acceptance, but that doesn't mean you're going to do anything differently about it. It just means, oh, I'm I'm not feeling so good. Um so for any man, especially who's who's feeling weak or, look, weak's not even the right word, who's just feeling vulnerable, acknowledge that that's a part of being human. You Men don't have to be strong. They don't have to be the providers. They don't have to be the solution makers or the problem solvers of this world. You know what? Women can carry that weight too. <laughs> I do my fair share of it around here. Uh, it, it comes down to the story that you're telling yourself. And if you're telling yourself that it's weak to be vulnerable, then you won't accept it. If you're judging yourself or criticizing yourself or giving yourself a hard time and beating yourself up, then you're preventing yourself from moving past it. It's the ownership of the emotion that allows us to transcend it. If we don't honor the fact that we feel the way that we feel, then we will never allow ourselves to process it. And you've got to heal it. You've got to feel it to heal it. Yet men are opposed to feeling they're all about fixing and if you're in a state where you're always figuring it out then you've stopped feeling it out so it's actually getting out of our own heads and getting back into our own hearts and honoring what's going on in our body and literally simply saying something as easy to ourselves like a positive reaffirmation or a positive affirmation statement such as it's okay to feel this way it's going to be okay i'm going to get past this it will pass it's okay the last two days, I've been super flat. I've been super unhappy. It's like I look out the window, it's grey, it's miserable, it's raining. We're in lockdown. My my husband's birthday is coming up. We can't socialise, we can't celebrate, we can't interact with loved ones. It sucks, you know. And I'm like, you know what? It's okay to be in a state where it just sucks. I'm all right with that. I'm all right that it sucks because tomorrow is another day and it may not suck as much tomorrow as it does today. If we can go back to that time where you did put your hand up and you kind of refer to that you wish you did it earlier mm. and it takes a lot of courage I mean us three myself like in Luca have all been there and we, we all agree pretty openly that it is tough that's probably the hardest step to initially say to someone you know what I really need help and it's a why scary is it so thought. tough though that's a great question why is it so tough I think judgment is one of the biggest things Lane what would you say well, yeah, it, judgment is definitely one of them because we become what we judge. If we fear judgment, it's because we've already judged ourselves to be that. And yeah. then we're expecting everyone else outside of us to judge us even more than we're, the way we're judging ourselves. So that's why if we go back to that story, how is it that we're judging ourselves? What's the story that I'm telling myself? Is it true? Is it yeah. kind? Is it necessary? Is it stopping me from being able to be a better human being? Is it supporting me to be this way? Is it sabotaging me? I mean... These are just questions that I'm often asking myself too. So it's just interesting that men more than ever today are so fearful of judgment where it's usually women that are the most judgmental. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. And there's a we um, had an interview with Mark Mitchell who's a physio. He was actually on the – he was a physio for the um, surfing tour for a while there. Mm -hmm. And we always refer back to this quote and you would obviously relate to it pretty well. If you get an injury in professional sport or just you roll your ankle down at the park, you're going to go to the physio and you're going to get it checked. And if you're not feeling good and you're feeling anxious or you're feeling sad, what's the difference with going and getting your head checked? And I was just going to say, so you, you put your hand up, you reach out, which takes a lot of courage. You speak to your best friend. You even mentioned there was a six-month period where you woke up every day thinking, how am I going to kill myself? Yeah. So to get out of that state, you tell your friend, what were your next steps from there? She advised me to go and see a naturopath because from her experience, she knew that the, my brain health was being affected by my poor gut health. It was just symptomatic. I, I didn't just deal with the, core, with the symptom, I was dealing with the cause as well. 
So at that moment, I mean, in those times, there wasn't really any mental health support services around other than maybe Lifeline, but it was certainly wasn't a, a, an avenue that I was ready to go down or even knew that I had the choice to go down it. Had I known that there was a Lifeline or a Beyond Blue or a Black Dog or a Reach Out or a Are You Okay or any of these other organisations, they may have been my first port of call. But I'd always relied on friends and family and my immediate network to support me through my deepest, darkest, most challenging times. So nothing changed in that particular scenario. But that's also a, a byproduct or a result of my choice to surround myself with those kind of people and stay connected with those kind of people because the law of proximity states that we become of the top five people we spend the most amount of time with. So who are you spending your time with? And are they supporting your growth or are they stunting your growth? Are they sabotaging it? So when it came to reaching out to Jo and asking for help, she talked me through it. Um, she took the time to understand it, similar to what you were saying. She didn't judge it or criticise it. She criticised it. She recognised that it was a dark and scary place to be, but now's the time to take action. We can't just keep sitting on our hands and waiting for someone else to do it. It's time for you to get up and do something about it. So... Just taking that first first step to put my hand up, the second step to talk about it, and then the third step to go and see somebody about it, that set the wheels in motion. And then that enabled me to start taking ownership and therefore control of how I thought and feel. And then that dictated how quickly I recovered. Would it be fair? To, it does. It definitely does make sense. Mm-hmm. Lane, would it be fair to say you're a bit of a no excuses kind of person? Uh, look, I haven't always been a no excuses kind of person. The I In my early years, I had shitloads of excuses. You know, it was everyone else's fault. Um, I had a real fixed mindset. I was a lay blamer. It's like the judges don't get it and my boards are shit and, look, you, you just disrespect me and you don't get it. And, you know, I was like, like a wiggle but with blame. It's you know? <laughs> <laughs> all your fucking fault. Um And then I had to take responsibility and then I realised that the excuses and the stories were preventing me from taking ownership and therefore taking control and doing something about it. So as long as I'm laying the blame and pointing the finger and telling everyone else it's their their problem, then I was full of excuses (laughs) and nothing ever changed. Everything just kept staying the same. I was like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because as I go on your, I went on your Awake Academy website and the first thing that hits you in the face is no bullshit transformation. And yeah, that kind no of more way, shoulda, coulda, or woulda. Exactly. And that kind of straight away goes, all right, I'm in for not sitting around, not making excuses. You 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 hold yourself accountable. Yes. And and you get on and you you do what you need to do without blaming others, which is what you just mentioned. And can you talk to us through the Awake Academy and those three kind of pillars of fun, flow, and freedom? Yes. So Awake Academy is about cultivating growth, connection, and happiness in humanity. And like you said, it's all about no bullshit transformation. This is not a a goal-setting course. This is to help people awaken, to detach from fear, take control of the life they love, which is about bringing back the fun, and designing a life they live versus living by default, which is finding your flow. So I feel that life's become a little bit too serious. And Social media is distracting us. Um, Everyone's telling us how we're supposed to live our lives. Um, We start subscribing to other people's perspectives of what kind of lives we're supposed to live. And then we get either halfway through our lives or, unfortunately, most people get to the end of their lives and go, what the hell did I just do with my life? (laughs) I just lived it according to someone else's ideals, not my own. And that prevents us from being who we want to be. So that's the awareness piece, the being who we want to be. And then we get to align ourselves with our values and understand our core beliefs. And then we awaken ourselves to fulfill our potential. But unfortunately, the, the, well, conversely, the, the alternative option is to just keep living on autopilot and allowing everyone else to dictate their terms of, of, uh, of life to you. So Awake Academy, and the course is called Own Your Truth. So the, the call to action there is to wake up and own your shit and trust in love. Let's get rid of the fear face. You know, let's get rid of the the distraction and the fear and let's start becoming a little bit more self-aware about who we are, what we want and design a life that we love to live. You're never too young or old to create that. Absolutely. Did did that as well come in with your book? So you've got a book called Awake to Evolve. Yes. What was the thinking behind that? 
So Awake to Evolve was like the, the inspiration behind Awake to Evolve started with an Instagram uh, 30 days of, of motivation that I put on Instagram and then I just took the quotes that I'd put up there and then wrote a whole bunch of stuff that supported the quotes and then turned it into a little book. It's a little book of inspiration and it's just my musings, really. It's just my beliefs and thoughts on on uh, the inspiration that I draw on daily to be a better human being. I'm as a competitor, I was in the relentless pursuit of competitiveness and, and improvement. Today, I'm in this relentless pursuit of growth. I, I love to grow because that's the only sign of life. And then I also love to share those lessons and that growth with others to help support their growth as well. So that's really the inspiration behind that little book and the Awake Academy. We um so we're looking to organise a chat with Anna Mears, uh, Olympic oh, yeah. cyclist, Love and Anna. doing. Pat and I were looking at her story yesterday, and she had this rival, this English woman, Victoria, for years. They just went at yeah. it. Did you have someone? I know you said you were second in the world. There was there someone for you that just lit that flame yes. inside, that lit that fire. Just go, I want to beat you so bad, and or I'm gonna, you know, someone you thought of when you went to training at six o'clock in the morning. Yes. Lisa Anderson, she was the golden girl of women surfing for many years. And, uh, yeah, she was my greatest rival. And, look, we were really good friends until I become her greatest threat and then it went downhill very fast. And then we started shit-talking each other and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it turned into um, quite a healthy rivalry. But the great thing about having a rival is they, they bring, well, as far as Lisa and I are concerned, we brought the best out of each other because neither of us enjoyed losing, especially to the other. So we really had to step up and, and be more fierce and more competitive and more focused. So I, I enjoyed that rivalry with Lisa. The challenge that I had with Lisa too was that she retired Well, she retired injured in the year that I won my first world title. So the American press then started to claim that the only reason I won my first world title was due to her absence, which really pissed me off. <laughs> so when she came back the following year, I really wanted to hammer the nail into the coffin. And uh, fortunately, I was able to. But my goodness, that, um, yeah, winning that second or third world title when Lisa came back was had a lot more meaning than the first one. <laughs> Can you walk us through, like, the mindset? So you're out there, you you know, you're in a final. What What's your process? Are you just on what waves you're looking for, things like that, you, what your competitor's doing? What 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 goes through? I mean, we haven't really spoken to a surfer, I don't think. So we... You know, we've had footy players, we've had soccer players, we've had tennis players, but we've we've never had a service. So, what we walk us through the mindset? There was another question. I was just going to say, we have you? Did you ever cross paths with Carmen Greentree, Lane? No. No, we we spoke to Carmen anyway. That's a that's a conversation for another day. But she she was a surfer, but she just fell short of the tour. But um, really oh. interesting story. Really, really um, yeah, amazing and inspiring story. Really, I was just wondering if you guys happened to cross paths at all. No, I'll have to check that out. Or maybe we have, but I can't, I don't recall. But anyway, I will check that out. Thank you for mentioning it. Um, the process to becoming a world champion, uh, look, the process was simply trust in the process. <laughs> um, no more complicated or um, uh, more challenging than that. The, the, one of the barriers that prevented me from winning my first world title was my fear of success. And uncovering that fear is what enabled me to then overcome the fear. It was fueling my behaviours for the first seven years of my professional career. It really was. So what it looked like was I kept falling short. I'd come second or third or second. Um, I was really inconsistent. I was a lay blamer. I would have challenging relationships with my peers. So when you have a fear of success, you you tend to uh, lay blame and, and allow everything outside of you to dictate the terms to you. And, and it wasn't until I shone a light on this fear that I go, oh, okay, so now I need to do something different. We know the, um, the uh, interpretation of insanity is doing the same things over and over again, expecting a different result. So I had to do things differently. So what happened was two things, really. I fell in love, not only with a man, but also with surfing again. I fell in love with the process. So falling in love with the process then focused my attention on all the things that I have to control to be the best performer that I can be or to be the best surfer, the best competitor I can be. So instead of worrying about what my competition were doing, instead of worrying about what the judges were expecting of me or what the industry was wanting from me or what anyone outside of me was wanting, all I needed to focus my attention on was what I can control. 
So I mitigated the distractions by turning the word focus into an acronym, which stands for follow one course until successful. And that's what I did. I stopped doing all the media. I stopped doing all the other work, all the charity work that I was doing. I stopped attempting to be everything to everyone. And I narrowed my attention down just to becoming the best surfer that I can be. So falling in love with a guy called Ken, who was my shaper, my mentor, my coach, my travel companion, my confidant. He really helped me mitigate all of this, all the distractions and start focusing my attention. And then it was a matter of focusing my attention on my equipment, my health, my nutrition, my training, my preparation, my skill sets, my technique. Uh, all of those things became my competitive advantage. So they were the main two things that I did to um, step outside of the expectation and pressure that was associated with becoming the best in the world and actually fulfilling it. If I can just go back again to that time you did reach out lane and yeah. you mentioned you had the world at your feet, you know, you're traveling the world, you're surfing, you're doing what you love, you get to see the whole world, you're with friends. The outside looking in, Lane Beach has got the best life, I guess, out of everyone. <laughs> Every, you know what I mean? Like you've got <laughs> yeah, the ideal bad. life. <laughs> yes. And on a smaller scale, a lot of people we've spoken to and even ourselves have kind of felt uh, – a burden to speak out and a feel of, oh, well, there's someone a lot worse off than me. Why should I bother speaking out about my story? I'm not sure if you felt that, but if you did, and I'm sure you could relate to it even if you didn't exactly feel that, but what advice would you give to someone who, obviously, yours is a much larger scale. Not everyone is a professional athlete, but even the small time, you know, I've got a full-time job, I've just had a baby, or I've got a nice family, but I'm still feeling depressed or I'm still really anxious. I'm I'm not worthy of speaking out. What would you say Mm. to someone like that? Everyone has a story and every story is valid. And having the courage to share your story then gives validity to other people who are suffering in silence because the ability to share your story gives people an opportunity to resonate and then relate and then connect with you. And then they don't feel so alone in their pain and suffering. So that's been one of the motivating factors for me to share my story. And that all came from training with other athletes who I got to know. And when I got to know them, I got to understand them. And the more I understood them, the more I wanted to support them because I related to them. So it's a really powerful message to recognize that your story matters, your pain matters, and the worst thing you can do is suffer in silence. One more thing. Was there a sense of, you mentioned when you got on the tour, it wasn't what you expected. It was uh, a completely different, probably completely different, seen to what you thought it was as a childhood dream did you feel Mm -hmm. a big sense of disappointment yes very big sense of disappointment i was disappointed that women's surfing was so devalued and when women or anyone walk into an environment where they're devalued they devalue themselves and then they devalue each other and that's what i saw women surfing do they were just dragging each other down they were emotionally vindictive it was just a bitch fest we'd lost the benefit of gender there was no there was no women on tour it was all just girls trying to be blokes and uh, it took a long time to change that. But that was one of the motivations for me to create this vision around women's surfing. It's like, what can I do to leave the sport in a better place? What can I do to improve the situation? So sharing my story, become more, you know, becoming more vocal and media friendly, um, wearing dresses to events instead of tracksuit pants and T-shirts, um, uh, embracing my femininity and my style i'm not trying to surf like a guy or be a guy actually embracing the fact that i surf differently to men and that's okay um and encouraging other women to do it too and allowing people to be who they are irrespective of what their sexual preferences are or or whatever you know we're all different and that's what makes us so beautiful that's what makes us connect is our differences and our imperfections Couple fan questions to finish off. Um, oh, there's not- fans. There's fans. There's fans. I have fans. <laughs> we won't keep you for too long. I know you mentioned Where you want to get out in the surf. I can't see the fans. <laughs> <laughs> We've cut it down just to two. Uh, so okay. the first one is: Do you have a distinct favourite moment from your career? Do I have a distinct favourite moment from my career? My goodness, you know, my career was 19 years long, so it's um, a challenging thing to. Ask a parent who has 19 children which one's her favourite. I'd say, uh, look, the first moment that came to mind, look, when, when, I, when I joined the Pro Tour and any athlete actually or anyone, we want to be respected and recognised and acknowledged by our peers. We all want that. 
that comes with a sense of belonging. There's no deeper burning desire in human beings than to feel like that sense of belonging. And after I won my sixth consecutive world title, I was really feeling the pain. I was feeling the pain, of course, of the expectation on my shoulders, but also feeling the pain of my peers who were just getting frustrated with the fact that they couldn't beat me. And it was almost like they were hugging me, but then sticking a knife in my back as they congratulated me. It's like, congratulations, but fuck, how are we going to beat you now? You know, they just, they were getting fed up with me. And that felt really uncomfortable. It was really sad. You know, I felt like I'd lost the respect of my peers. Um, and really the only thing, one of the things that was really driving me to become as successful as I was to ensure that I could leave the sport in a better place. So it wasn't just self-promoting, which I was accused of constantly. It wasn't always self-promoting. It was also promoting a sport that I truly believed in and truly believed that had more value than what it was being uh, given. So after I won my sixth world title, my body started to break down. I came back and competed the following year and I won the last event but I lost the world title and I had to hand the world title trophy over to my next, well, the next world champion, which is a young, amazing young surfer from Peru called Sofia Milanovic. And that day was a spectacular day. It was in Haleiwa Beach in Hawaii. The sun was shining. The waves were pumping. We finally got really good waves. Um, Sophia was surfing with one of her best friends called Chelsea Hedges, who went on to win the world title the following year. So it was mate against mate, but everyone was celebrating the fact that this that was the first South American to win a world championship and she was going to be a national hero. And we were all celebrating that. It had nothing to do with me losing. It had everything to do with her winning. So when I stood on the platform, the podium to accept the trophy for winning the, the event, but then handing the world title trophy over, the commentator said, Lane, is this a bittersweet victory? And I honestly said from my heart, no, this is nothing but sweet. It's sweet because I won today, but it's even sweeter because we now have a national hero and a, you know, an icon in women's surfing by the name of Sofia Milanovic, and she is going to lift and elevate the people of her country to believe that they can be anything in the world, let alone be the best in the world. And when, and I just said that from the heart, you know, it wasn't contrived by any sense. And so Later that afternoon, we went to a dinner to celebrate the tour had finished and the event was over and everyone was happy. And when I walked into that restaurant, my peers gave me the second of two standing ovations that I've ever received in my life. The first was when I won my first world title and the second was when I uh, walked into that restaurant. And to accept that level of respect and recognition and acknowledgement from my peers meant the world to me because that's all I ever really wanted from them. Speaking of peers, the the third, second sorry, and final fan question we'll ask is friends on tour. Who did you get along with best? Um, I had a couple. I mean, look, one of my biggest mistakes is that I burned so many bridges when I was tour, I lost the majority of my friends who I toured with. The girls who I got along best, best were Rochelle Ballard from Hawaii, Megan Abubo from Hawaii, Serena Brooke from North Queensland, um, Pam Burridge and Pauline Mensah were my a couple of my greatest mentors, along with Wendy Botha, and then Tom Carroll, Bart Lynch were also very supportive. So th- I I surfed through three generational changes. So I had a, a variety of different um, generations come and go as I stayed at the forefront of the sport. But they were those. Three or four girls were predominantly my my strongest relationships. So Pauline, Serena, Rochelle, and Megan. Um, my greatest friends in the current generation would be um, Tyler Wright and Stephanie Gilmore and Sally Fitzgibbons. I have um, the utmost respect and adoration for those athletes, and so proud of of how they're promoting the sport and uh, role modelling what it means to be a champion athlete. Quite a they're few on, big names there. They're, so they're currently on the tour yes. and how do you think they're going to go? I mean, Carissa Moore is at the Carissa top. Moore? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She's tough yeah. to beat. Yeah. So <laughs> how do you think that's going to go down and what do you think is going to happen with the men's as well? Oh, look, I'm a little worried about how the, the males, the Australian males are competing. We've got the Olympics coming up in, geez, 23 days, 22 days. Gosh, it's come around fast in three weeks. And um, with the Olympics on the horizon, I know that it's inspiring the athletes to to be better and perform better. 
I have a, the utmost confidence in our female athletes coming from Australia with Sally and Steph. I'm a little worried about Julian and Owen and their ability to compete in pretty mediocre ways, which is what we're expecting in Japan. But in saying that, the whole Olympic spirit may elevate them to performance heights that they've never experienced before. When it comes to the Pro Tour, look, Carissa Moore is in absolute scintillating form and she's going to be hard to beat. But in saying that, Tatiana Weston-Webb is looking really strong. Courtney Conlog's chasing her first world title. Stephanie Gilmore's got seven. She won her six at the same age. I won my first. You know, she's obviously still in contention. The women's side of the tour is looking really strong. The male side, it's just being dominated by the Brazilians. Uh, Italo, <laughs> Gabe, <laughs> um, yeah, the Brazilians are looking so strong. They're so hungry. They're so disciplined. They're so determined. They're so passionate. That's got to be part of their competitive advantage. Have you ever thought about going into coaching? No. Okay. No, I haven't. I, look, if I have time to coach surfing, I'd rather be surfing. So surfing is still my number one passion. It's what I do every day. I'm grateful that we were able to jump on this call earlier so then I can go surfing for a little bit more time. And I love the the current high-performance system that we have in place is very adequate when it comes to supporting our athletes. I'm the chair of Surfing Australia, so I oversee the whole um the whole kind of the body of surfing within this country. So that keeps my toes in the water. I also host a talent identification camp called the Lane Beachley Camp, which is uh, all the under 16 year olds from around the country come and train with me for a few days up at the High Performance Centre at Surfing Australia. So I still dabble in it, but um, I actually mentor athletes outside of surfing. I've worked with tennis players, Formula One drivers, and I'm currently mentoring a rugby league player. So that keeps my uh, dance card pretty full. We've actually got a signed Tom Carroll surfboard behind me, if you can see there. Mate. I see that. <laughs> that was, um, yeah, the gift from Tom, which is nice. He's a legend. You want to have a Bronte with it, Pat? Me, yeah. Yeah, get, get out there, Pat. Shred it. <laughs> <laughs> Dominate. Uh, Lane, we just want to thank you so much. And, um, I mean, your story is nothing but inspiring. And to, like I thank said, it's, it's pretty intimidating to speak out, especially someone of your kind of stature. And to share your story and show your vulnerability to inspire others and recognize that is amazing. And to take the time to speak to us, um, we really appreciate it. And good luck with your surf out there this Arvo. Thanks, guys. I'll go and catch your wave for each one of you. <laughs> Thanks, Lloyd. Thank, Thank you. you so no much. Thank you. Turn up the talk podcast. Tackling mental health together.